Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Maeve Marston, and you're listening to the podcast of Queer Stories, an LGBTQI storytelling night hosted at Giant Dwarf in Redfern. This week, Patrick Abood, an award-winning storyteller, documentary filmmaker and broadcaster, shares his story with us. Hi. How are you? I'm very nervous, and people always think that's weird because they're like, you're on the telly all the time, why are you nervous? But I think this is a bit different because, um, you know, it's personal, and... I talk to people about their personal shit all the time, but no one ever really gets to ask me about my personal shit. Um, but may have convinced me to do this tonight. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, um, this story begins with whiskey and rain. Purple rain. I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you any pain. Their words are borrowed from Prince, an artist my brother idolised. They're also the words I uttered to my mother after years of mourning. She mourned for what she thought was the death of another son, the end of a dream that she'd spent her entire adult life creating for me. You see, I was her last hope. My mum didn't have much of an adult life, though. She was married at 17 in the poorest part of the north of Lebanon in a small village. Beautiful village, but a small, poor village. My father was born in Palestine. He's a 1948 refugee. And if you don't know what that is, go look it up. It's very important. As a kid, Dad was known as what in Arabic we call... um, Akrut, or misfit, little shit, troublemaker, essentially. He still is. Um, His father died when he was 11, and Dad lived in Lebanon in a refugee camp. He never went to school, he stole cars, broke hearts, and caused havoc. And then at 15, Dad spotted Mum. For the next two years, he would court her the old school way. He'd wait for her at the school gate and bring her a shiny green apple every single day without fail. True story. He had no money, but he had a neighbour with an apple tree that was very healthy. (laughs) He was infatuated, obsessed, smitten. Mum didn't pay him the least bit of attention because um, if she did, she'd probably get skinned. Jiddo, that's granddad in Arabic, warned her to never speak to him because he was mushklik bir bir, which means trouble. The entire village would say, he's very big danger, big trouble. But he persisted until mum finally gave him eyes and she too fell in love with his rebellion, his carefree spirit and his bad boy ways. Mum is the golden child, one of four kids, the only girl. And she was smart, like really, really smart and stunning. Like literally the smartest, most beautiful girl in the village and still is all of that and more in my world. She wore tailor-made dresses that my aunt sewed for her. Her hair, always quaffed, her skin, impeccable, her eyes incandescent, and her smile infectious. The oldies cottoned onto this burgeoning romance, though, and forbid my mum from walking to and from school alone anymore. She was chaperoned for months afterwards. This is a true story. Only in the village in Beirut. Actually, in the north of Lebanon, not in Beirut. 
My dad disappeared, but he never let her feel he was gone. Every night when the village slept, he'd leave a green apple at the foot of her bedroom window, every night risking his life to do so. It was a very healthy apple tree. <laughs> Hundreds of apples later, and a yearning that just never waned, my mum finally gave in. One night, dad left another apple. Um, he managed to slide a letter into mum's bedroom window, though, in this particular night. Finding this letter would be the day my mum's life changed forever. That morning she went to school wearing two layers of clothing, a simple white nondescript dress and her school uniform on top, a lot larger than she was used to being. She left the house and no one suspected a thing. Following my dad's instructions in the letter, she ran away from school at lunchtime and that afternoon she was married to my dad. Yeah, she's a, she's a daredevil, she still is. Um, the plan was so elaborate and bulletproof. Kinda, almost. <laughs> Mum and Dad went back to the village after three nights in hiding, um, and that's a very long story to tell you, but that's for the next time. Um, and my jiddo was waiting with a rifle. <laughs> Another true story, he actually tried to shoot my dad. Um, Thankfully, my mum's cousins and the family calmed him down, took his rifle, and mum and dad left. Um, and I guess, you know, a bit of context around that. Where they came from, people weren't really allowed to fall in love, particularly in the village. Spouses were chosen for you. You got married when you were told, and if the groom's family had money. That was always a huge drawcard. Obviously not for dad, he had no money. A lot of apples, though. Um, it was tough, but mum and dad were in love, and really, that was all that mattered. Love. That's what I reminded them both of when, fast forward 31 years later, a still very naive, sheltered, scared, shitless me came out. I didn't really come out though, you see. I was um, outed. And here's where the story gets really complicated. Everyone that knows me knows I have a sister, Fadia. Some of you in the audience might know her. I know, actually, many of you do. Well, there you go. Isn't she gorgeous? Um, well, she's not actually really my sister. She's a dyke. Well, now she's a dyke, but she wasn't before. And she added me to my parents, who they see as their daughter. Confused? Yes. Yeah, it's a little confusing. <laughs> After my parents eloped, they had two boys, Harry and Tony, my big bros. The Civil War got too much with kids, and they fled to Australia. Then um, here in Australia came my brother Jason, and then me. So we were actually only a family of four boys, not four boys and a girl, as most people now know us. It's just easy to tell that story because the real story hurts. It hurts so much that I've never really had the courage to speak of it openly before now. I will try and hold back the emotion. Every time Fadia and I meet someone now, we leave this part out, and we've left it out for many, many years. But I guess now I don't want to admit the one thing that has shaped me so much and, and so much of who I am. I don't want to leave that out of my story because it just doesn't feel right anymore. Um, I guess I'm ready to share it, and you know, what better place to share it in a safe company um, with you and my fellow queer brothers and sisters? <laughs> my dyke sister, Fadia, is actually my sister-in-law. She was married to my oldest brother, Harry. Harry and I were exceptionally close. He raised me. He taught me about Prince, 
and about punk and about the metaphysical poets and Shakespeare and sex and art and anarchy. There was 10 years between us, he the oldest, I the youngest. But our bond was timeless, it still is. Harry was my best friend, still is. My confidant, my idol, and I wanted to be just like him. I still do. I didn't have much of a relationship with my father, and Harry was the man I looked up to. The light that guided my path in the darkest of times, and he still does. An exceptionally talented lawyer, artist, and cyclist, and baker, and lover of theatre, and really fucking weird music that I adored. <laughs> the purveyor of lots of weird shit that I adored that I really never would have had known about or been inspired by if he hadn't been there inspiring me. He'd go to law school and study all night at home afterwards and I would literally count down the hours until he'd get home. I used to sit on his bed while he studied and read his books. He'd sleep three hours, go to work at a bakery before law school to save money for records and guitars. His dream was to play bass in a band. On the weekends, he'd take me vinyl shopping to all the second-hand record stores. I'd sit on the floor in this one record store that we both really, really loved. They had the coolest purple shag pile carpet. <laughs> so very Prince. He'd pass me a stack of records and say, go sample these. Then we'd drive home and in the car, he'd ask me to tell him what I thought. How did the music make you feel, he'd say. And I still hear that question in my head every time I listen to a new track walk out of a gig, and I still answer him. Only now they're just words in my head that never leave my mouth. But I know he's always listening. In fact, he's never stopped listening. Harry, my brother, my best friend, was killed in a motorcycle accident. I was 17. And my sister-in-law, Fadja, and he were married for just a few weeks before the accident. Their romance was short-lived, but one of the most special I have ever known. She was on the bike with him. She survived, barely, but she survived. He didn't. After years of recovery, Fadi and I just decided we'd tell everyone we were brother and sister because, well, it was easier that way. And as you can see, it's still a little bit difficult to, to talk about it now. Um, but her and I grew closer and closer, and at the same time, I grew further distant from my parents and, and from my other brothers. I knew at that point that I was gay, I just didn't know how to accept it or even really comprehend it or understand it because the part of the world where my parents came from, gay people were a sin, an abomination. And, you know, I had no idea, I had not met another gay person. Right now in some regions of the Arab world, in the most conservative Islamic countries particularly, there are thousands suffering the most horrific discrimination and human rights abuses. Homosexuality is still punishable by imprisonment and extreme cases, even death. I think I've said that a hundred times over the last couple of years in various things that I've done. Um, but, you know, it's still happening and it's horrific. Lebanon only just changed their laws this year and homosexuality is no longer considered a crime there. So thank fuck for that. <laughs> So knowing how my parents perceive gay people, having lost my brother and seeing what my parents were going through after our loss as a family, at that point I just couldn't bear to put them through any more pain. I tried really hard to make myself ungay. I had girlfriends, I had sex with women, true story, <laughs> but my heart was black and my soul was empty. I was literally robotic, machine-like, emotionless and just really deeply unhappy. 
I'd become very ill. I developed an issue with eating and basically didn't really eat at the point where I weighed 29 kilos. My parents decided that they'd send me to Lebanon and find himself a wife, they said. Um, they kind of said that in jest, but they really did mean it. I think that was the hope. And I decided they were right about Lebanon, not so much the wife. I needed to get away. So to find all that joy, all that happiness, all that incredible wisdom and love that my brother Harry had given me, I decided to go. I went to Lebanon. What was supposed to be a six-week spouse hunt, in my parents' mind, <laughs> ended up 11 months living in a new city with a totally new outlook on life. I discovered a community of LGBTQI Arabs that were living so underground but expressing their identity in ways I'd never thought possible. I felt like I'd arrived at myself again, like I was finally at home in my homo skin. I experienced so many first times with my sexuality amidst a backdrop of war and bombs going off never too far away. And it felt like, like it genuinely felt like every day could be your last. So why not live that way? Everybody that I was meeting was living that way. You know, be hedonistic, be carefree, let go. And I honestly felt free for the first time in years since my brother's death. It was an incredible feeling. It was all wrong in my head, though, that I had to go to Lebanon to do it. Um, but now I see all these years later that it makes so much sense. You know, growing up in a very sheltered Western Sydney Arab household, middle-class mainstream gay was the only gay I knew because it's all I saw on the TV, in magazines, everywhere I looked. None of it resonated with what I felt deep inside. I just never saw me in Sydney. Oxford Street wasn't me. White muscle boys were not me. Saunas and sex clubs were not me. I always thought if I'm gay, that's who I have to be here, and it just wasn't me. In Beirut, though, every underground bar, every clandestine club night, every beach party, I saw guys just like me. I felt like I could be gay and still be Arab, and hey, it's okay. And in that year, it was the first time I kissed a boy, and it was really good. <laughs> the first time I held a man's hand, that was awkward, but also nice. The first time I danced, like I really fucking danced. You know that feeling when you just kind of like, you're on a dance floor and you, you let it go. <laughs> yeah, I wish I still had those moves. Um, it was the first time I really looked at myself in the mirror though, in the morning and felt like I could see clearly the guy that was looking back at me. Um, and you know, after I lost my brother, that was something very difficult to do because we also look very much alike. Um, so it was kind of like every time I looked at myself, I was constantly seeing him. My heart was really wounded and the pain of losing him never faded, but it did become easier because I was surrounded by all this beauty and love and acceptance and just this kind of welcoming, welcoming community of people that didn't judge me at all and let me be who I needed to be. From that moment, everything I did became about doing all the things that my brother Harry would never have the chance to do. It was the excuse I gave my parents about not finding a wife. <laughs> I wanted to travel first, I said, you know, see the world. And that kept them quiet for quite a long time. When I returned home to Australia, I went straight to see Fadia, my sister-in-law. Kind of feels weird saying that because I, I've honestly, until tonight in public, always said my sister. Um, and everyone really knows us that way. So she took one look at me and said, it's okay, I know. <laughs> You know, and we had a hug and it was pretty, pretty amazing. 
It took years more to tell anyone here who I really was, though. I kept up that facade with my folks, you know, always finding a new excuse. I still couldn't bear to put them through any more pain because for them, every time they saw me, they also saw my brother. Um, that changed, though, again, because of my sister-in-law. Years more would pass, and Fadia and I continued telling everyone that we were brother and sister, but nothing prepared me for the bombshell that she dropped at breakfast one morning. She said, Paddy, I have something to tell you. Actually, she didn't say, but she said Habibi, which means my sweetheart or darling. I have something to tell you. I've met someone. And I can still feel the joy in my heart from that moment when I speak of it literally now. She always said her heart was dead and that she would never love again. She just couldn't. But she did, and this time it was with a lady. And they're still together and she is fucking incredible. I adore her to bits. My sister-in-law remained close to my folks and one day she was at my parents' place, I wasn't there, and randomly my dad gets up from his midday slumber, my dad sleeps a lot, um, don't, doesn't have any apple trees at home though, <laughs> his tribe, they didn't quite grow the same here. Um, and he says to her, tell me something, is Patrick queer? And he used the word queer, which is really strange for my father. Like, my dad's a pretty old-school Arab man, and there's just no way he'd know that word. So when she, she was thinking, how the fuck does he... Why is he saying queer? <laughs> like, that, that confronted him more than the fact that he was asking the question. <laughs> Seriously, it was very strange. She was in, she was in shock, and, and, you know, she says, well, yeah, you know, he's a little bit weird and different, and you've always known that about him. Um... And he said, no, tell me, is he a pufta? <laughs> She's like, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> you know, he's always talking about that guy who was my secret boyfriend at the time. Um, and she just kind of shut down. She was totally stunned. Mum then chimes in and says, well, you spent a lot of time with your friend, that girl, Darreen. <laughs> She's always staying in your house and, you know, she's all you ever talk about, but you're not a lesbian. Um, and in that moment, both of our lives would change forever again. My sister-in-law says, well, yes, I am. I am a lesbian now and Darreen is my girlfriend and we live together. And that was the moment I got outed by default, essentially. Um, my folks put two and two together and I got a phone call not long after from my sister-in-law with the news. And jokes aside, I was genuinely petrified. I literally thought, like, I'm dead. There's no way that this is going to go down and they're going to be okay with this. Um, she came back into town, we sat in her lounge room, we drank a lot of whiskey and listened to Purple Rain on repeat. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, it was our song, you know, and it still is. It was one of my brother Harry's all-time favourite songs. And she looked at me and I said to her, I reckon I'm going to be dead tomorrow, so let's drink more whiskey and <laughs> keep listening to Prince and enjoy this, this night together. Um, but she looked back at me and said, well, no, this is your time to really change your life and to change lives to be bold and to, you know, to take your parents through what's going to be a really tough journey, but I know Harry will get us through it. And she was right, because here I am now. Um, 
you know, I was the guy at the time telling all my queer Arab mates, don't ever come out to your parents. Just live your life in private. Be a good Arab son. Be a good Arab daughter. And now this, you know, it was time to change that, not just for me, but I guess for so many of us, because that is who I was around at the time. We were this little kind of, you know, underground community of closet Arabs. Our house was, well, my sister's house was basically a refuge for queer Arabs who weren't out. Also a full-time party house. Um, the next day, though, I went home to mum and dad's, petrified as I was. My brothers met me there. Um, I walked in and mum was wailing literally like another son had died. Um, you know, she sounded exactly the same as the night... as the night the police came to our door with that death knock. A night I will never forget. I felt like a knife had gone through me and it was... I was literally right back in that spot again. When I walked into the room, my dad would walk out. He couldn't even look at me. That was really difficult to deal with. Um, since then, you know, it's been an ongoing journey with mum and dad and my brothers. But in the past few years especially, um, you know, since I made the choice to be very public about being gay, you know, i.e. hosting the Mardi Gras. They've actually been pretty bloody extraordinary. In fact, um, last year when we were on set, my dad was sending me text messages saying, fix your tie, it's crooked. <laughs> and mum was like, you know, you don't look, I don't think that colour's good for you. <laughs> so clearly things have progressed quite a lot, which was great. And you know, look, in fairness, my family give me so much love. And even though sometimes they still find it, they still find it hard, they are unwaveringly supportive and they're incredible. I love them with everything in me and I would give every limb on my body for any one of my family. I'm very lucky to have them and that does deserve a clap. They're pretty incredible. <laughs> they're incredible people and I am, you know, extremely lucky and I never take that for granted for a second. I'm one of the lucky few that can be out now um, you know, and get text messages from my parents when I'm hosting the Mardi Gras on television about my clothing <laughs> and getting their fashion advice. Um, I couldn't come out for so long, though, because I didn't want to risk losing my family. And, you know, for us Arabs, um, family is everything. And now I can say I am gay and I am Arab, and, again, it's totally okay. And I don't have to choose anymore, which is an amazing feeling. And at the end of the day, I am who I am because of the beauty and richness of my culture and my family, and I am so fucking proud of that. <clears throat> Coming out is a universal story. I'm sure many of us in this room have all been through our own journey down that road. And it's difficult for many. For some, it's a breeze. For some, their parents come to them and say, when the fuck are you going to come out? Um, clearly, that wasn't my experience. But the experience is different for everyone, and regardless of cultural background. I guess when you have that added layer, though, of having to negotiate not only your cultural identity, but also your sexuality, it, it can cause really horrible grief. Not just for you as an individual, but for a lot of people around you who mean a lot to you. And there are so many other Arab brothers and sisters out there that still feel there is no hope and the only option for them is to live in the closet. There's loads that enter marriages of convenience, 
And that's happening right here in Australia. I've done stories about it, so have many others, and it, it is literally happening right now. As my brother Harry always said to me, you know, on those drives home from the record stores, as I sat on his bed reading his books, and every minute of every hour of every day since he's passed, I still hear his words. He said, don't let anyone ever tell you you can't be who you want to be. Don't ever be scared to question and never stop dreaming. Use your imagination when it gets really tough because your imagination will always get you through. Thank you, Harry, for making me all of who I am and thank you for giving me Fadia, my incredible sister and all. I almost said sister. <laughs> who I now no longer have to tell everyone is my sister because your death and our loss is no longer a secret but a celebration of life. Tickets for the next Queer Stories on the Giant Dwarf website. And for discount tickets to the show, donate to my crowdfunding at patreon.com slash ladysingsitbetter. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.